Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, my name is Fraser Allen, and this is the first ever episode of the Scottish Business Network podcast. In each fortnightly episode, you and I will be hearing from a big personality from the world of Scottish business. We'll be featuring a diverse range of people in terms of age and background, but everyone we talk to will have a story to tell. It's going to be fun. And if you're new to the Scottish Business Network, please do find out more at sbn.scot. Now, what a start we have for you with this first episode. Tweedy Brown is one of the outstanding characters of the Scottish business diaspora in London. He tells me he's now 70 years old, but his energy, dashing appearance and multitude of business interests make that hard to believe. Named after the River Tweed and brought up in happy but modest surroundings in a council house in West Lothian, there was only one thing that Tweedy wanted to do when he left school, and that was make a beeline for London and the swinging 60s. He landed an evening job in the bar at the Shaftesbury Theatre and was soon to be dancing the night away in the legendary Flamingo Club with stars from the musical Hair, such as Patti Boulet and Floella Benjamin. But he was far from a playboy. At the same time, Tweedy was also holding down a full-time job with the post office. Excelling at this, he was offered a secondment with the army, a career route he had never previously considered. Leap forward 20 years and Tweedy found himself in the extraordinary and dramatic position of being the senior British commanding officer in Berlin when the wall came tumbling down. We will hear about that, his involvement in musical spectaculars and his subsequent highly successful business career encompassing everything from technology to energy projects in Kazakhstan and an ice cream with a royal connection. Let's dive into the world of Tweedy Brown. Soldier, businessman, impresario and bon vivant. Let's start by going back to where it all began. Can you tell us a bit about your, your childhood, your upbringing and the kind of hopes and ambitions that you had as you set off into the world? Um, I was born almost exactly 70 years ago um, at the Simpson Memorial Hospital in Edinburgh. Um, family lived there at the time but then we moved out to... Paul Beth, which is hardly the suburbs of Edinburgh, Edinburgh but um, not too far away. Um, um, my family has always been involved in entertainment, and there are um, chimes of that through my life. Uh, as we discuss things, you'll probably recognise them. My mother was the singer in the band. My father was the trumpet player. He'd learned to play the trumpet in the Salvation Army. Um, the two of them met, um, married, um, and had me. And I have a brother who's uh, five years younger than me, David. Um, so that was the early part of my life. I, um, it was a working-class background. Um, lived in a council house in, in Polbeth. I grew up very much with music in the background. Um, I always remember my grandfather... Um, who I thought was very old at the time, but he was probably 50. <laughs> <laughs> I always remember my grandfather taking me, along with my grandmother, taking me to see Rock Around the Clock with Bill Hill right. and the Comets. Um, but it was an interesting backdrop to my life. Um, uh, that was the beginning of, of modern, I suppose, rock and roll music. This doesn't sound like the, the start of life that you would necessarily expect, expect from a military man. 
No, true. So at this stage in your life, were there any thoughts about one day joining the army? Never even thought about it. Never crossed my mind. Um, actually, harking back to that rock thing, <laughs> um, when I left school, the options were university or the civil service. Um, and in those days, you had to do an examination to join the civil service. I passed the examination, didn't go to university, which I sometimes regret, but I did catch up later. I didn't go to university at that time. Um, so I joined the civil service uh, because the civil service would get me down to London. And London in the 60s was the place to be. Um, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, mm -hmm. um, the fashion, uh, the excitement. Um, that's what brought me down to London. The swinging 60s. The swinging 60s. Right. And I, um, I was with uh, the post office telephones, as it was called then, mm -hmm. British Telecom, as it is now, as uh, a management trainee. Um, I uh, used to reverse commute. I, I ran the service side of a telephone exchange in Watford. So I went, I was living in Bayswater at the time, I went from Bayswater to, to Watford, whilst everybody else was coming in from Watford. Not quite to Bayswater, but to central London. Um, so you're always quite unconventional then? A, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Even Very more unconventional, because I had an evening job. Yeah. Uh, my first evening job, to make money, to buy clothes actually, um, trendy clothes, was in Henneke's Wine Bar in Portobello Road, which was a very interesting experience. Um, and then I ran the Upper Circle Bar in the Shaftesbury Theatre. And at the time, the musical Hair, which was really popular, um, uh, was, was showing. Um, I worked there for about a year, I suppose, and got to know many of the cast. Um, still know some of them. Um, uh, Marsha Hunt... Uh, Floella Benjamin, who went on to do TV, Patty Boulay. So um, those were uh, exciting days. How were you managing? To, you must have been extremely energetic to manage to uh, you know, handle two jobs at the same time, particularly if you're ending up in uh, you know, nightclubs till, uh, till all hours with Patty Boulay and her friends. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, well, I was, I was in my late teens, early 20s, full of energy, um, full of enthusiasm. Um, and full of the joy of life. Um, I've always tried to be relentlessly positive. And even in those days, um, just a couple of stories from then. I, always, I used to go to a thing called the 24-hour Technicolor Dream at Alexandra Palace. Um, Sounds very psychedelic. It, it was very psychedelic. I hasten to add, by the way, <laughs> that never have drugs of any description, apart from alcohol, <laughs> played any part in my existence. I remember that evening um, a lady sitting on a chair, an oriental lady sitting on a chair, and people, uh, it was called a happening, people being given scissors and asked to cut a little piece out of her dress. Um, that was Yoko Ono. And um, the guys who were cutting pieces out of the dress were John Lennon and huh? George Harrison. <laughs> Some people, it might be a, a strange, strange that you then moved off into a career with, with the army. So how did that mm. all come about? Well, I was, um, I was on a fast-track management programme by then. Um, I was a senior telecommunications superintendent 
in uh, Bridge Telecom. And um, I saw uh, a, a job advertisement uh, for an exchange um, with the army. So um, I joined uh, the army on a, a thing called a short service commission, which is a three-year commission. Um, thinking to myself that, well, I'll get a lot of experience and I'll go back to uh, British Telecom um, uh, much wiser and three years older and three years more senior on my salary scale. Um, but I liked it so much and I was offered a regular commission that I never went back. What was, what, in the army. what was it about about it that you really liked? Um, it was the opportunity, um, the leadership aspects of it really appealed to me, being given the responsibility to lead in the fullest sense of the word uh, bodies of men and, and women. Um, I liked the structure, um, I liked the honesty and the integrity and I like the fact that we owed allegiance to the country and the Queen um, and that we were apolitical, right. something I've um, tried to be all of my life. So you're embracing uh, life in the army. Can you tell us um, the story of how you sort of then developed through the ranks? Yeah, I, I joined as a commissioned officer. Um, I did my uh, military training. Um, that was quite tough because I was coming from a completely civilian background, although I'd always uh, been fit and I'd always been quite athletic. The, there are two or three things in my military career that are very significant. I mean, it gave me the opportunity to travel, which is one thing. But in those days, it was mainly Germany because the Cold War was at its height. Um, it uh, gave me the opportunity to study further and to get really good training. Um, a big career milestone for an army officer is when you sit the staff promotion examination. And I was lucky enough to pass at the staff college level and I uh, did the uh, degree course which is a two-year uh, Royal Military College of Science first year and the Army Staff College at Camberley the second year. That was great training um, and gave me a lot of confidence in life. My first promotion from Major to Lieutenant Colonel was to command a regiment based in Hanover in, in Germany. Um, where sad times, it was the height of the uh, troubles that we were having with the IRA. Um, and uh, uh, an IRA gang was watching my regiment, my staff, in Hanover. They had been for a year, interestingly enough. And they killed one of my soldiers with a, an under-vehicle booby trap um, one week. And the following week, um, a bomb was put under another one of my soldiers, but he had the opportunity to look under his car before he got into it, so he saw it and, and he survived. So those were tough times. I, um, I went on promotion, sorry, no, I didn't go on promotion, I went as a lieutenant colonel uh, to be the deputy chief of staff of the British sector in Berlin immediately after that. Um, and that was an amazing time to be in Berlin. Uh, the, again, it was right in the middle of Glasnost, Mm -hmm. um, Gorbachev had kind of withdrawn support to the East German regime 
the wall was still up. Um, but whilst I was there, um, the wall came down. German minister was being interviewed um, on television about easing travel restrictions for East German citizens. Um, and he made a mistaken announcement, or at least he made an announcement saying that East German citizens would be allowed to travel um, with visas. And the press, who were listening intently to what he said, asked him when. And he'd obviously not thought about that bit or had been badly briefed on it because he said, well, I suppose midnight tonight. And so the East Berliners, East Germans, who had heard all this, um, at midnight turned up at the wall. The Volkspolizei, the East German border police, had heard the same announcement. They were confused. So the East Berliners and East Germans walked through the border into the West and that was the fall of the Berlin Wall. <laughs> Fascinating. And you're standing in the middle of it with your, with your soldiers wondering, wondering what to do. We, we, it was a surprise, um, I must say. Um, we uh, did not expect it. No one did. But those were, those were tricky times. There was a period of about five or six hours when the East German army uh, was standing on the Berlin Wall, there were rifles loaded, um, and we didn't know if they were going to fire on the crowds. Uh, as it happened, they didn't, as we know, um, and it was very peaceful. But uh, it could have gone badly wrong if, if it hadn't been handled correctly. Mm -hmm. And in a, a previous occasion when I, I met you, Tweedy, you told me a very interesting story about how the, the, the first incursion of Western capitalism into, into East Berlin <laughs> that evening. That's right. Um, yeah, that was uh, uh, in the uh, French crossing point, one of the French crossing points uh, from East Berlin to West Berlin, um, where... Uh, I don't know if it was the worst of the West got there first, but in the very early hours of the morning of the first day after the wall came down, um, a container lorry drove over the French crossing point, wound down the legs, um, and the doors opened, and it was a Beate Use sex shop. Now, how they knew what the business acumen was to spot that kind of opportunity, I do not know. But there they were, the first business that I saw, the first Western business that I saw operating in, in right. East Berlin. Right, right. Wow. <laughs> there's, a, there's a business lesson in there. Opportun opportunism. Very entrepreneurial. For most of us. Yeah. It was in Berlin that I got involved in um, national ceremonial um, and large-scale military events. Um, traditionally, there had been a British military tattoo every two years in the Deutschlandhalle in uh, West Berlin, uh, for the West Berliners, the East Berliners couldn't come. Um, and I organised two of them whilst I was there, one uh, before the wall came down, um, and I understudied um, the producer, a guy called Sir Michael Parker, at the Edinburgh Tattoo for a couple of years to get to know the ropes. Um, and I did that um, as well as a, a rock concert with Phil Collins and Genesis um, 
unusual for a military man, I know, but we worked with partners in Berlin to do that. The reason that we did that and cooperated with the City Promoters was because it helped us to fund um, the final tattoo that we did in Berlin, um, which was called The Last Tattoo in Berlin, and which was part of the Queen's state visit. We did a conventional military tattoo, but part of it on the first evening when the Queen was there uh, was with status quo, um, which which was an interesting <laughs> experience, introducing them to Her Majesty <laughs> later after. They the, will behave. Later after the show. They were exceedingly well behaved, and they were very proud to do it. Mm. After Berlin, Tweedy was promoted to a staff job, which unfortunately meant being shackled to a desk. However, three tours of duty as a brigadier followed, including commanding the unit in London that transmits classified documents. But then he decided it was time to leave, and he threw himself into organising another musical spectacular, this time at Sandhurst. And it was at this concert that Tweedy was approached by a company called Property Search Group. They wanted him to run the business. Tweedy resumes by explaining what appealed about the job. I'd always wanted to do something which was separate from what I'd done in the military, but which used many of the skills and competencies that I'd developed in the military. Um, I didn't want to do uh, the usual stuff like being, not that, not that I'm belittling them, but I didn't want to be bursar of a school or uh, secretary of a livery company or that kind of thing. I wanted to do something substantial. So that was what appealed to me about this job. It was a, a national franchise, um, a business format franchise, 95 offices uh, throughout England and Wales. Um, used a lot of the skills that I'd been become familiar with in technology. Uh, we were providing information systems for conveyancing solicitors. Um, and it was disruptive in a way. Um, and highly successful until uh, the property market crashed in 2007. When the crash happened, and people forget this, but in 2007, um, the level of property transactions in England and Wales was 1.2 million. And it had been above a million for most years since the end of the Second World War. Um, when the crash came... Um, it dropped to 600,000. And it's worth bearing in mind that it's never actually recovered to the million level since then, right. even, right. even right. today. Yeah. Um, so unlike the bankers mm. um, and other people who had jobs which were corporate, when you're running a business uh, on your own and it um, uh, lives or dies by the balance sheet, um, the profit and loss account, mm. um, and you look at your overheads, um, the directors of the company decided to reduce uh, time commitment and to reduce our salaries in order to make the company still viable. Right. Which we did. Um, and the company, by the way, went swimmingly eventually through the recession and mm. came out at the other end uh, very healthily. Um, but at the time, I dropped um, to uh, two days a week, and I'd said to my fellow directors, look, I'm going to look around for some other directorships. I became 
chairman of a software integration company which was based out of Washington DC and I was chairman of um, EMEA, Europe, Middle East and Asia um, and it was a, a software company which was focused on mainly on defence but not exclusively and we won a couple of sizable contracts um, and uh, that set me off in a, a so, new so direction. So what did you feel were the particular skills you were able to bring to that role? Um, it's, it's actually difficult to analyse your own capabilities, um, although these days um, 360 degree reporting would encourage you to do so. But it is actually difficult, as, uh, as the, the, the national bard Robbie Burns would say, <laughs> oh, that God the gift would gee us to see ourselves as others see us. But I seem to have a facility, and it's probably from my days in the army, um, to, to lead people, um, but to lead people not based uh, solely on strict orders, but through uh, persuasion, facilitation, um, oiling the wheels mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, always having this, I mentioned it before, this relentlessly positive approach to mm. life. Yeah. Um, I always say to people, it's, it's really easy to be negative. Any fool can stand on the sidelines and criticise the referee, but get on the field and kick the ball. Mm -hmm. It's a different process mm -hmm. altogether. So what about bringing us up to date now, because you seem to have a, a very varied a range of, of interests... <coughs> I mean, I know just from recent discussions that this involves Kazakhstan and ice cream. So can you <laughs> fill us in? Um, yes, I can fill you in. The, the, the portfolio is now very diverse, <clears throat> um, and I quite like that. Uh, it has been skewed towards encouraging others um, and um, helping uh, especially young people uh, with knowledge and experience that I've gained over the years. Um, together with a business partner of mine, we started a thing called the League of Angels. And the League of Angels was about um, encouraging startups um, and getting funding uh, for startups. Um, it tied in nicely uh, with an initiative that I'm involved in and have been for a number of years called the Genesis Initiative which is a cross-party uh, political lobby group on behalf of micro, small and medium enterprises. Um, and we've, we've proved to be quite powerful over the years. We've got nearly 2 million members um, and we've done a lot for the micro and SME uh, community. So having become known for that kind of thing, um, people approach me with ideas, um, practically every day. Um, some of them are a little bit off the wall um, and some of them just need a bit of advice and guidance to help people along the way. Um, some of them, like the ice cream one, uh, uh, are uh, interesting because uh, a friend of mine said to me, Tweedy, he said, um, would you be chairman of my new company? And I said, well, what does it do? He said, well, it's it's an ice cream company. I said, Barney, ice cream. 
I said, well, what? I said, what's the story? He said, well, it's a, it's a company that was started by Richard Branson's taste director for Virgin Atlantic. And it's gluten-free, grass-fed cows, uh, ice cream with interesting, traditionally British flavours uh, in a new forest. I said, no, that's not much of a story. He said, well, that's it. I said... This is really spooky. I said, well, there's got to be a story. I mean, like Ben and Jerry or Hagendas. Mm. There's got to be something behind it. Mm. Um, and at the time, um, I had a friend who, uh, st who still is uh, a friend and also works at the Royal Hospital Chelsea. He's a captain of invalids. And we were thinking about going there and supporting the charity with any proceeds that we made from the ice cream. <coughs> So I said to him, what if there were a connection with the Royal Hospital? Um, and even better, I said, royalty. I mean, that mm. would be amazing. The brand, by the way, is cream and country. Um, so I said, wouldn't it be great? So uh, I said, Royal Hospital Chelsea. Wren built it. King Charles II commissioned him. Wouldn't it be amazing if there were a link with King Charles II? So somebody who was with us googled it and he said, guys, he said, you're never going to believe this. He said the very first time ice cream was ever served in the UK was at a banquet in Windsor Castle, presided over by King Charles II on St George's Day. <laughs> so I said to Barney, I said, I'm in, I'll be your chairman, 10%. And, and how is the ice cream going? It's going uh, very well. Yeah, no, yeah, it really is yeah. going. It's really going very well. We have, we yeah, we we have a royal ambassador, uh, Prince Michael of Kent, nice. and uh, and one of our new strap lines is "God Save the Cream." <laughs> so yeah, it's actually going, it's actually going very well. Brilliant. So that was yeah. uh, so that was one of the business initiatives that I got involved in mm. uh, as a startup, and there's quite a few of them. The Kazakhstan thing. Um, was a much more conventional route, came to me, interestingly enough, here's a link going back, from the guy I met in Berlin who was trying to do the rock concert on the Maifeld, a guy called uh, Michael Putter, who's a dear friend, and actually it's his birthday today. <laughs> um, and Michael came to me with um, the opportunity uh, to set up some waste energy plants in Kazakhstan. Um, I'm involved with another company. I chair a company called Virtual Power Solutions, which is in that sector. So um, we went to Berlin. We had meetings with uh, local representatives from Kazakhstan. They came to London. We went to Astana, the capital of Kazakhstan, formed a, a company together with some local partners called Kazri Zero Power Limited, and um, negotiated a memorandum of understanding with the Kazakhstan government. Um, and so now we have a mandate to provide up to 16 waste energy plants throughout Kazakhstan. Now, Kazakhstan is the world's largest landlocked country. It's over a million square miles. Its population is only 18 million which is probably the population of London today when it's mm -hmm. swollen with tourists. Yeah. 
um, quite interesting. Um, fantastic country. Astana is an amazing digital city. It's only 20 years old. Each energy plant costs 250 million euros. So the overall value of the project is 16, sorry, for the 16 plants is 4 billion euros. Wow. It's quite a big deal. A big project. Mm. Mm. Yeah, Tweedy, I'd like to finish by asking you that age-old question that pops up in these kind of conversations. What advice would you give to your younger self, the young Tweedy cavorting around London? Well, first of all, I would follow my, gran my granny's advice. Um, but it would be to always have an inquiring mind. Be relentlessly positive, even in the face of the worst adversity. Um, and to try and see things from the other person's point of view. Mm -hmm. Those three things, I think, have stood me in good stead over the years. Very sound advice from Tweedy Brown and his grandmother. We're just about done now. I'm Fraser Allen from White Light Media, Scotland's most creative and results-driven content marketing agency. It's true. I'll be back in two weeks with another interview. Hope you'll be back too. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.